Hello, ladies. Welcome to the Hourly to Exit podcast. I'm your host, Erin Austin. My goal with every episode is to share information and resources to help you achieve the next level of growth in your expertise-based business. We all know generating income from our expertise is pretty easy. The challenge is in scaling and building a business that can run without you. Join me here every week to make sure you are building an asset that can be used to fund your goals and your legacy. Before we get started though, one little disclaimer, because I'm a lawyer. The information I share on the podcast is general in nature and is provided for information purposes only. It is not to be relied upon nor construed as providing legal advice or legal opinions about any specific issue or set of facts. Now, here we go. Hello, ladies. Welcome to the Hourly to Exit podcast. I am very excited to have Erica Good with me today. Hi, Erica. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, we go a bit back, and so I'm excited to have you on to talk about financials that buyers care about. I think you might have called it financials that matter to buyers. But before we jump in, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. So I'm Erica Goodney. I'm a CPA, and I am a fractional CFO for coaches and consultants and individuals who are growing those practices whether they decide to be a soloist or they want to build an agency. I work with them on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis, not just once a year, as <laughs> most CPAs, is a, that's how often most people see their CPAs, but I am meeting with my clients every single month and we are talking about what has happened in their business and more importantly, what's going to happen in their business and planning that out. So do you consider yourself a fractional CFO? Is that kind of the role? Or? I do. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And different people know of that and don't know of that. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I think it's a great resource to have if you're ready to bring a financial professional into your business more than just once a year. Definitely fractional CFO. It can be such a huge resource into your business. Well, I will say like a lot of us don't understand completely the difference between a kind of accountant versus a CFO. Like what's the difference? Yeah. So that's not uncommon. I think there's so much confusion in the industry and looking into the industry on what everybody does and who do we call what. And a lot of times the labels overlap and people do similar things. But I would say like CPAs, I think there's an assumption that a CPA does tax. I think CPAs is just a designation. CPAs wear many different capes, right? They can do many different things. And so I think there's a difference of you can have a CPA who is your tax CPA and you can have accountants or CPAs who are fractional CFOs and those serve very different purposes. And a lot of times business owners or individuals get frustrated because they think their tax CPA should be acting like a financial planner or a fractional CFO. And then there's all this kind of yucky feelings against each other. Like, well, my CPA is not providing this and my client's asking me for things that they didn't pay me for. And so there's this lot of confusion around what is the purpose and what are you paying for when you have a tax CPA versus a fractional CFO? Yeah, I've had both. And I've had the disappointment of having someone who was just like, all I'm doing is your taxes. And I'm like, but I've got this issue. And it's like, and then I've had the, fortunately, I don't, I'm not with that person anymore. <laughs> and now I have the, more of the CFO helps me kind of forecast, helps me think about my business and 
things like that, which is great resource to have. So yes, absolutely. So I would, yeah, I would say the fractional CFO is usually looking forward more than they're looking backwards. They need to look backwards, but their focus and their value comes from looking forward. Right. So when is somebody ready for you? I provide different level of services depending on where people are. A lot of times I see people come in around like the two to $300,000 revenue mark because they're having a lot of questions around converting to an S corp. And they don't know what that means. They don't know if that's right for them. And they don't want to, you know, everybody's afraid of doing the wrong thing and getting arrested by the IRS. The IRS will not arrest you also. <laughs> so everything's going to get arrested. Jail. Isn't there a tax jail or debtor jail or something like that? I don't know. There is for sure tax jail. I would feel very confident in saying the listeners of this podcast are probably trying to do the right thing. And they're probably never, ever, ever going to get close to tax jail. Tax jail is reserved for people who are purposefully doing really bad things. Uh-huh. Well, probably at scale, I imagine, too. Yes, at scale. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, they deserve it. You missing a couple deductions or putting in wrong numbers on your tax return will not land you in tax jail. Right. So yeah, I see people... One point is I see them usually at the two to $300,000 mark when they start wanting to look forward in their business and when they're starting to see significant growth and scale and like... kind of that click moment, like, oh, I figured this out. Finally, after years of trying different things and experimenting, I figured this out. And now I see that there is a future in this direction that I'm going to scale. And now how do I plan for it? I think the best problem that I get to solve is I have money coming in. What do I do with it? Or how do I do it the right way? Or how do I save on taxes the right way? Or how do I invest in my retirement the right way? And so I always say I get to solve the really fun problems, right? Yeah. Having too much cash is a fun problem to <laughs> that have. Is a fun and we get problem, to, huh? Yes. And we get to figure out how to make more cash, save more cash and invest it in the right ways. So that's one point. And then another point that people tend to bring me in is when they've created what is like an agency or something where they have a staff of people and they've done very well and they've been able to track things along the way, probably until their first million with their bookkeeper or by themselves sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then they get to the point where cash is flying in every direction. We've got to make payroll twice a week. We're bringing in invoices, but some of them aren't getting paid. How do I get those paid? I can't miss payroll. And we start to get these really tens of thousands of dollars in and out swings Mm -hmm. on a weekly or biweekly basis that can get really nerve wracking if you don't have a good visual into the plan for those and how your cash flow is kind of growing and fluctuating as you run that business. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. The first example, like that was when I, cause I've never, I haven't done my taxes like ever, I don't think. So I've always used accounts for my taxes, but it wasn't until kind of that flex point that I brought in someone to kind of do financials, which brings us to, cause I never had financials before that. I just had yeah. a checkbook and yeah. So, so that brings us to our topic today. And so I'm excited about it because I haven't been talking on the exit side of the hourly to exit journey for a while. So we're going to talk about that today and about the financials that will matter to a buyer. But just starting from the beginning, like what do we mean when we say financials? Yeah. So what I mean, at least, is I mean really simply a balance sheet and or a profit and loss statement. No matter where you are at any point in your business, you're going to need to do those. Whether you keep them in a spreadsheet, there's no shame in spreadsheet. Whether you keep them on a legal pad, that's okay too. Like those financials statements is always going to be what feeds your taxes. So whether you do it on your own or you have an accountant do your taxes, you're always going to have to produce some kind of financials. And that's usually going to be your balance sheet, 
and your profit and loss statement at the very minimum for every business owner in whatever stage you're at. Mm -hmm. Right. And what is a balance sheet? Oh, thank you. (laughs) A balance (laughs) sheet. Yes, that's true. A balance sheet tells you what assets you have and what debts you owe. Mm -hmm. And so accountants love to be in balance. Balance sheets are called a balance sheet because they should balance your assets are always going to equal your debts plus your equity in there. And so I'm going to take it out of business for a second because there's sometimes we're like, wow, that's I don't even know what my assets are in my business. But when I think about something very basic, like if you think in terms of owning your home, your home is your assets. Let's say you have a $400,000 home and you have a $300,000 mortgage on it. That means your asset is the $400,000 thing, the home, your debt is the $300,000 thing and your equity in that is $100,000. Mm-hmm. And so the 400 equals the 300 plus the 100, right? And the, it works the same way with our business. We have assets in our business and then we might have debt in our business and the difference is the equity or the value that we, the owner, have when we pay off the debts, basically. All right, I'm going to go in this direction. Just and bear with me. So, you know, I like to talk about intellectual property as being an asset in the expertise-based business, mm-hmm. but I don't think they show up on the balance sheet. Tell us how, mm-hmm. what that there, means. Yes, yeah. so that is... Really, so there's some really nitty gritty accounting that we won't go into the depths of. It can show up on your balance sheet. One of the ways it can show up is if you buy that. And so actually, when you're talking about exiting, I didn't know we were going to go this direction. You're really making me scratch my brain for some really good gap accounting here. But this is good because this is talking about exit. So if you do have intellectual property to you, To me, the business owner, if I have intellectual property, it might not show up on my balance sheet. You're right. But when it does show up on a balance sheet is if a buyer comes in and says, ooh, I see you have something of value, intellectual property. I want to buy that from you. Now, if the buyer pays money for it, Mm -hmm. it is now an asset on their balance sheet. Mm -hmm, Right. You're right. It wasn't on the seller's balance sheet. As soon as it gets sold and somebody pays money for it, then it's an asset to them. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that brings us to the financials that buyers like. And maybe there's then the extras that aren't quite on your financial statement as the seller. So yeah, do you want to, any place you want to start there? Uh, let's jump into the profit and loss statement. We talked about balance sheet. Mm-hmm. I think a buyer's before anything, a prospective buyer is probably not going to care about your balance sheet. Your balance sheet is your balance sheet whatever you owe in your business is literally your business. They're likely not going to take on debt from you. And so what a buyer is really going to care about is what's happening on your profit and loss statement. And more importantly, what's going to happen in your profit and loss statement. And so what you have, every business owner is going to have what happened in the past. What they want to see is probably what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. They're going to care a lot about your revenue. They're going to care a lot about your profit. And they're going to care a lot about the difference between those every year going forward or your trend lines. Mm -hmm. And so they want to know if you're increasing in revenue, how fast you're increasing in revenue and what it takes to increase that from like an expense standpoint. So they're going to worry about how fast that trend is moving in profit and revenue Mm -hmm. and what it takes to get there. Because if you've set up your business, so they care. They're going to look at what happened in the past. You've created this business. It's hopefully moving in an upward into the right direction, right? Up into the right. That's what everybody wants to see, up into the right. 
and it's moving at a scalable clip. But if it's taking expenses and it's degrading profit, right? That's what a buyer cares about. They care that they're going to be able to take, buy that business and make more money and more profit every year in the future. And so a couple of really important things is your financials matter because we care that they're accurate in the past, that they're very accurate in the past, because that's what's going to feed your forecast in the future. And we care that when you talked about having a fractional CFO, that the person helping you build out that forecast is really keenly aware of how your business operates. Because you could have an example of maybe you're building a business and it does take in year one and two, a lot of expenses to stand up what you're doing. But those expenses are one-time costs and maybe they're not going to be there in year three through eight, right. right? And so you care very much that the person helping you build your forecast understands that those expenses are one-time things and they're not projecting them into the future. Right. And that's where the buyer is going to see values. You've built up and created this thing and now it's going to run at a much better operating margin. Right. Now, if I'm thinking about selling my business, take us to like the T minus three years, five years. Okay, I want to sell my business in 2025. Well, it's too late now if I want to start that. Let's say 2030. When do I need to start thinking as a seller as opposed to just an operator? Or maybe they're the same. Oh, I think they can be the same. Here's why I think that. Because a business that somebody else is going to see as very valuable is now currently also very valuable to you. What a buyer thinks is valuable is something that's going to kick off a lot of profit and a lot of cash relatively easily because it has a solid operating system behind it, processes, and it's running efficiently. It doesn't take just me as the seller to operate it and to push all the buttons every single minute of every single day. Right. And so in essence, if you're building something that's going to look very attractive to a buyer, you've built something that is already very valuable to you. It's already kicking off profit. It's already making a good cash flow. And it's relatively, quote, easy to run without you or at least you specifically. Somewhat independent from you. Exactly. Yeah. And so what about if I'm trying to pay myself kind of nothing so I can keep cash in the business and keep growing it? Like, how will the seller buyer look at that? So cash in the business is... We kind of always have lots of questions around, and I'm going to go into taxes for a second. Do I get taxed on the money that I take out of the business or do I get taxed on any money that the business generates, right? And so there's this, sometimes there's this misnomer that like, if I keep money in the business, I don't pay tax on it. Usually I would guess the listeners to this podcast are either an LLC or an S corp. Mm -hmm. They're probably not a C corp. So you're going to pay tax on anything that is just revenue minus your expenses is your profit. It's also going to be what the potential buyer cares about. They don't care whether you took money out of the profit to pay yourself or you didn't. In essence, that cash isn't going to be theirs anyways. Like you've earned that cash, you're going to walk away with that cash when you sell it. What they care about is that profit mm -hmm. line item. Mm -hmm. And so as the seller, if you are generating a lot of cash and you can pay yourself, by all means, pay yourself. But if there's a reason that you want to keep that cash in the business, because you think that that helps you build or grow something that in the future is going to be valuable, then by all means, if that's your purpose, do it. I wouldn't say keep money, never keep money in your business, never 
get sometimes I get people like, it's December, how much money should I spend so I can reduce my tax burden? And I always say, you should spend $0 if you don't have to, right? Like we should never be spending a dollar to save 30 cents. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I think there's a misnomer out there that like, I need to spend something in December so I can save on my taxes, but we should never be spending money that doesn't need to be spent. I would rather you take home a dollar and pay 30 cents on tax on it. Then yeah. take home 70 and then pay tax on that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, it was going to be, you're going to buy it in January. Like, okay, right in December. Right. Like if you were, you know. right. <laughs> and so I'd be very careful, like keep money in your business. If you think that you can spend it in a way that's going to make your price tag later higher. It's an investment. Like you're waiting maybe mm-hmm. to make capital investments and things like that. Yeah. So if I underpay myself, does that not increase like what looks like profit, even though it really isn't because they would have to pay someone the market rate in order to replace me? Right. So there's two ways to pay yourself. Let's assume you're uh, an S corp. Mm-hmm. Somebody listening to this is probably an S corp. You probably are on the books having a salary. You always want to pay yourself a reasonable rate. And the IRS requires, they call it a reasonable compensation. You have to pay yourself what you would pay somebody else to do the work for you if you wanted to sit and sip coffee all day, right? Mm -hmm. And so really like the underpaying yourself shouldn't be an option. Now, if you want to take less distributions outside of that, that's actually still not going to make a difference to your profit at the end of the day because your owner distributions aren't a part of your profit and loss statement, just your salary. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And then what are the, I mean, have you taken someone, like done someone's books as they were exiting a business? And I haven't gone through the exit. Our exit plan is to exit in the next five years. So Mm -hmm. let's make sure we're A, doing all of this accurately. So somebody can't come in and be like, well, what's this number? Like always be prepared for an audit. If you're prepared for an IRS audit, you're going to be prepared for somebody to come in and look at, at your books during a due diligence process. So yeah, we've gone through the process of getting investors and also being prepared for if somebody comes knocking, we're ready to tell you how much this thing is worth. Yeah. And when a deal falls through because of the due diligence process, what are typically like what went wrong? Oh, I'm definitely not an expert or a broker in the due diligence process. My guess would be that something looked rosier than it was proposed to be, Mm -hmm. that it was actually in due diligence is somebody comes in and starts asking all of the questions. They start nitpicking everything, which is a hard process to go through, right? And that is the nature of the process. And you've maybe said, oh, we're at a 50% margin. And so they're going to dig into who are your contracts? What makes those up? How long are those? How easy are those to get when they expire? And then somebody's going to dig into all your expenses. And if after they do all that digging, because what they're doing, they're trying to poke holes in your forecast. Mm -hmm. And so if they poke holes in that and they're like, wait, you said you're going to grow at 30% revenue for the next five years, year on year, every year. I don't know how that's possible based on what I'm seeing today. Mm -hmm. That's what they're trying to kind of poke holes into. And so that's where like we can all make up a forecast. Any CFO can make up a forecast that looks real great. But the moment somebody starts poking holes in it and can't get to the same numbers that you did, Mm -hmm. that's where a due diligence process would start, I imagine, breaking down and a buyer would either walk or say, I still want it, but at a very different price. Right, right. That's when the retrading, I guess the term is, starts, right? 
Yes. So if somebody's thinking about they want to sell their business someday, that's why we're here. What's something that they can do today with or without a CFO's assistance that can help them kind of get on the right path? I don't think it's ever wasted time to sit down in a spreadsheet of your own and start forecasting out what the future of your business looks like or what it could look like. And this doesn't have to be a really nitty gritty process. I think sometimes we can hear words like that and be like, oh, I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't even know where to start. It's really just open up a spreadsheet and say, this is what I think this year will look like. Here's what I think the next five years could look like. Mm -hmm. And from a revenue standpoint, and then what would it take from an expense standpoint? Like, is that going to cost me money? Is that going to make me hire somebody? Mm -hmm. And what does that do to my margin? And it can be very high level, but it starts to get your brain working in that future direction. If you've only ever really looked through the past for tax purposes, it'll start make you thinking like, wow, why would a buyer want this? Or what would a buyer want? And how can I make that happen? That's great advice. Like just thinking yeah, about looking back, like starting out there and what resources are required to get there and start thinking about it that way, as opposed to like, instead of pushing up the hill, how do you pull yourself up to where you want to be? I like that. Yeah. There's a lot of times where as business owners, especially as excited business owners, I hear things like, okay, well, we're going to increase revenue by $100,000 in this next two months. And I'm like, great. Are you going to have to hire to do that to complete those contracts? And it kind of stops. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I will. Mm -hmm. So your $100,000 of profit really is maybe more like 70000 And right. that's Well, if you need to hire another to expert, then yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Which is fine. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. That doesn't mean don't do it. That mm -hmm. just means take both sides into consideration. Mm -hmm. So I usually ask about trends in someone's area. I don't know. Are there trends in accounting? <laughs> mm, financial or qualitative? Either one. <laughs> right now, the trend in the accounting space that everybody is paying attention to is the shortage of CPAs and accountants in our space. Really? Yes. And it is very well known in the industry. But if you are outside of the industry, I don't think people realize that there is a shortage. I believe there is a crazy statistic that says something like in the next 10 years, 75% of CPAs will retire. Mm. And they're not coming in at the same clip that they're retiring at this point. And so I would be shocked if somebody listening to this had not had an issue if they'd gone out looking for a CPA recently, a new one had an issue finding one. Because even inside the industry, if I'm trying to refer somebody, I cannot find somebody to refer you to. That is so interesting. So why is it just not the hot major anymore? What's going on there? Oh, that's a deep answer. The deep answer. I think this is my opinion. So don't, you know, if you think something different, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of people giving this quote though. So I think it's been a very, mm, trying to speak kindly to my industry. There are long hours. There can be very long hours in accounting and the burnout rate is very high mm. and accountants are notoriously also bad at pricing. And so you get this funny squeeze where, Accounting firms aren't making enough margin and they're treating their employees poorly because they have to get their contracts completed. And so you have this burnout. And I can imagine if I am a college student thinking about majoring in accounting and I ask 10 CPAs who have been in public accounting, 
they're not going to say necessarily kind things about how their work-life balance has been, Mm -hmm. which will not motivate anybody to go into the industry. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of things playing in to the industry, but it's not an attractive work-life balance. In the traditional sense, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of younger accountants who are changing the industry, Mm -hmm. but it takes a while to turn a ship. And so we are slowly moving in the right direction. But I think right now, there is a lot of old schools of thought and traditional ways of running firms that does not appear to be attractive to new up and coming college graduates. Now, are you mentoring young accountants to kind of have a different business model than billing hourly? I'm trying to figure out my own way of doing it. And then we'll see if I can pass along the knowledge to the next generation. But gosh, I mean, I see those young kids and there are people who should be accountants. Like, That sounds like a funny thing, but there are personalities and the way certain brains work that Mm -hmm. they should be accountants. Mm -hmm. And I would hate for them. I would hate for our society to lose that because of just inefficient and poor work-life balance. And everyone can't be a computer engineer or whatever the hot hot things are now that, yeah, we need professionals all across the board. So, all right. Absolutely. And we need to treat our people well. And across every industry, we people should be treated like people. Well, I would imagine the market will correct itself at some point. Like if you can't recruit and retain talent, then you need to change something, right? Yes. And certainly are people working remotely? Like is that part yes. of it? Okay, well, yeah. yeah, it's starting. And so mm-hmm. what I imagine will happen is the people who are running traditional firms with old schools of thought, they will have an extremely hard recruiting process. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And the up and coming firms who have very progressive new ways of thinking will easily recruit people. And you will just see this shift of market share move towards the progressive thinking firms. Yeah. And similar things happening in the legal industry. I will say I'm pretty far Mm -hmm. removed from it at this point. I mean, I haven't been in a law firm in God, I don't even know. (laughs) Very long time. (laughs) But the different kinds of firms that are virtual and have kind of independent partners, people who have their own firms, but then come together under one brand to market their services together. They don't have the same and you can work as hard as you want to and have a little more balance in their lives. Yeah. I mean, the burnout in the legal industry is, hasn't changed. <laughs> I think lawyers and accountants run very similarly yeah. run businesses yeah. and business models. And I yeah. think it suit us all for those industries to think differently. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, this is the Hourly to Exit podcast. You know, we talk about building a scalable and saleable expertise-based business. And so I have, of course, the soft spot for creating and protecting intellectual property. So when you are working with expertise-based businesses and they work with their intellect, do you ever come across challenges? We talked a little bit about like the fact that we can't put those assets on our balance sheets but do they have other issues that come up regarding protecting their intellectual property? And what kind of questions do they ask you? I imagine they ask you about how to value it. I think a lot of what I see my clients deal with is creating the processes around and like the frameworks. It's always about framework. And I don't think whether you're in IT, I have IT, marketing, coaching, like all these different, you know, it is all intellectual property, but I don't think they and we always see it as IP. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes until we've been educated, we have very narrow minds about what IP is. Yeah. And I think we grossly underestimate that the things we are creating 
and the things my clients are creating, the frameworks, the processes, the platforms, like these are all very saleable and transferable Mm -hmm. ideas and things that they're building. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't see somebody coming alongside them from a legal standpoint, calling that out for them. I'm not sure that we always know to do that when we're creating these things because we don't see them as IP from that side. Yeah, I like, you know, of course, I like to say that IP is everywhere because every time we're using our intellect, we are creating intellectual property. And then it's not just those things that we are selling, like books and courses and software. It's also the things that we use internally in our businesses to help create leverages in our businesses. So absolutely, I love that. All right, so we know this is a very meta podcast. I'm a female founder of an expertise-based business that I hope to sell someday. You are the female founder of an expertise-based business. Are you thinking about selling it someday? Not at this time. I am in a season of life. We talked in the green room beforehand. We talked about the ages of our kids. I have a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. And so right now, I am pretty focused on getting these little people grown up and running a business that just is truly like a lifestyle suited for me business. And so my goal today, I don't have selling on the mind. That doesn't mean that it couldn't be in the future. I don't have a finish line that I'm racing to. I enjoy what I do. I want to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean it won't change. I'm with you on that. Now, I, we did talk. I have a senior and I am racing to the finish line for that anyway. But like you, like when my son was young, my business was very lifestyle. It was very much like I did not do any business development. It was just like I had my well clients. That was it. And then... I could focus on other things. And now that he's pseudo independent, (laughs) I'm starting to definitely like put way more energy into my business and things that I've been doing the last couple of years. And so there's a season, yeah, for all of our businesses that go along with our lives, certainly when we are soloist women. And so, yeah, I agree with you there. And the funny thing about retirement And I guess maybe I think of retirement almost as like a employee kind of thing, as opposed to a business owner kind of thing. Assuming you've created a business that you love, to me, focus on, it's not retirement, but just relaxing, (laughs) you know, like having less intense needs in my business, but creating those revenue streams that require less and less of me. To me, that is retirement. And that's what I'm working on. So I think that's such a good call out because I think so much of society has this W2 employee mindset of retirement. Like I turn this age and I'm done. And coming out of corporate, coming out of burnout, like what if we just created work for ourselves that we enjoyed that didn't kill us? Right. (laughs) Like what if we enjoyed every day what we did and we weren't so desperate to retire? What would that look like? And I like that idea. But you're right. It's not something that we think about creating until we've left that W-2 mindset. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and you need to do something. I mean, assuming we're healthy and our minds still work, you know, and we have like, what are you going to do? I don't get what people do after they retire. I I, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I have no idea what they do. (laughs) I don't know. I'm going to need to do something because I don't sit well. So. All right. So as we wrap up, we believe in creating a more equitable society and we love to support businesses and organizations that work to help us women in particular. And so is there a organization that you'd like to share with the audience? So I have a cause, not a particular organization. 
since day one of building this business, I have donated 10% of my salary and the profits of this business to domestic violence shelters. But because domestic violence, I think the solution, and what do I know? I leave it to the experts, but the solution to so much domestic violence problems is so local that my money, the causes that we donate to are specific to the local areas where our clients are located. I'm a virtual business. I have clients all over the US. So 10% goes back to those cities, domestic shelters in the cities where my clients are located. This is not a chain restaurant. These are people on the ground in the cities, wherever you're living, that are building up these organizations to help women and men and children of domestic violence situations. And so those are very located all over the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I get to actually search out these organizations. And it's like my favorite thing to do in December. I get my card out, you know, my debit card out, Mm -hmm. and I start looking up all of these organizations that I've now donated to for years. And funny thing happens every December, the bank shuts down my card on that day because I'm dropping thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. on Portland and Austin and Illinois and like all these. And so they assume my card's been stolen. So it usually takes me a few days to get through once I turn the card back on. But yeah, so my cause is domestic violence support for women and children and men also, because that is not exclusive gender problem. But when I do have a new client, I have to look for who's supporting that particular city. And so I will call out a website called domesticshelters.org. And you can put in your zip code, your city, and it will tell you everybody who is supporting that area of the country. And I tend to do my research for domestic violence situations, starting with that website. So domesticshelters.org, if you're looking for somebody to support, or if you know somebody who needs support, you can find who's in their area there. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And so do you have something special you want to alert the audience to about what's going on in your business, offers that you may have? Yeah. So I have a podcast called Coaches, Consultants, and Money. I'll yeah, assume anybody podcast. listening to, yeah, thank you. I'll assume if you're listening to this podcast, you like podcasts. <laughs> and so if you want to look that up, Coaches, Consultants, and Money, and follow along there, or you can find me at ericagoody.com or on the socials at Instagram and LinkedIn and just see what I'm up to. I would love to hear from you. You can welcome to DM me anytime. Yeah, I noticed that you're on Instagram. So you, your business is on Instagram. My business is on Instagram. Now, what do you do on Instagram? Mostly just have fun. Let's be honest. <laughs> I, I go, I'm a little more, se- no, I'm not so serious. I'm a pretty lighthearted person, no matter where I show up. But Instagram, if you drop into my Instagram stories, you will see lots of behind the scenes, family stuff, pictures of Idaho, things like that. And this is not a revenue generator for me, but it's fun to be out there and be who you are. And my prospective clients and my clients get to see who I am because at the end of the day, we're all usually buying the person behind the business. And so I think it's important to just be yourself and show up as you are. That's great. Yeah. Instagram is a little bit dangerous for me. (laughs) Generally not a productive space for me. (laughs) Not productive, but fun. If you want to have fun, go over to Instagram. If you want to get all the highly professional things, probably head over to LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Erica. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and sharing domesticshelters.org. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Do not forget to check out the show notes for links to connect with today's guest and for the resources, offers, and organizations that we discussed. 
You can also find the links at hourlytoexit.com backslash podcast. If you got value from this episode, please subscribe. And I'd be so grateful for a review. I'm here to support your journey.